Well, good morning. We want to welcome you here this morning. We want to welcome those that are joining us live stream. And this morning we have a, a small presentation by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. And I'm going to introduce Neil Simons, and he's going to come and just maybe Simeon and share uh, a little bit of the ministry called EFC. Good morning again. Thank you for the opportunity to worship with you. And I want to share with you briefly about our ministry. The Evangelical Fellowship of Canada was the idea of and spearheaded by a young gentleman by the name of Pastor Harry Fott and was formally launched in 1964, 57 years ago. As you can see from the slide overhead, there are many Christian organizations that are affiliated with the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, Solomon talks about the benefits of working together. He said if you work alone, or if two work together, they can accomplish more than if you work alone. If, you, if one falls down, the friend can help you up, or if you should be attacked, two can defend themselves better than one. And that's the principle. The more of us who work together, the greater the impact, the greater the influence. Our mission statement, uniting evangelicals to bless Canada in the name of Jesus. So how do we do this? Well, there are several ways that we seek to engage. One is through intervener status and court cases. The Evangelical Fellowship of Canada has an excellent reputation in the legal community in Canada and has intervened before the Supreme Court of Canada more than 30 times and also more than 30 times in lower courts on various relig religious freedom issues. And then through submissions and influence, seeking to influence our governments toward righteous legislation and also by appearing before parliamentary committees Usually before any legislation is enacted, it is studied by an all-party committee. And so EFC makes submissions to this committee and also appears before them frequently. And then there are policy actions and priorities of the, of the organization as well. One of the current ones, a significant one, is MAID. M-A-I-D, it stands for, medic, or, uh, for Medical Assistance in Dying. Euthanasia Assisted Suicide. MAID was legalized in Canada in 2016 and updated again this past March 2021. Now from June 2016 until the end of December of 2020, of 2020 rather, there have been 21,581 MAID deaths in Canada. That's an average of 400 per month. In 2020 alone, there were 7,595 made deaths. That's an average of 633 per month. In fact, from, the, in, the, from, from 2019 until 2020, there was a 34.5% increase. And in fact, from June of 2016 until the end of last year, 2020, there, there have been a 274.5% increase. Now, when we speak of MAID, we are not talking about declining treatment. That's a different issue. We're talking about where we actually deliberately, specifically choose to end our lives. Now, as followers of Jesus, I believe that this is not an option that is open to us. When you read in the Psalms, the 139th chapter, the first 16 verses, it explains so explicitly how God is involved in our lives, totally aware of everything that's going on in our lives. And in the 16th verse, he talks specifically about how he saw our unformed bodies long before we were born, and that all the days that were assigned to us were written in his book before one of them came to be. Then there's, now the alternative that we see, which is a much better alternative than euthanasia, is palliative care. 
We believe palliative care, hospice care are much better alternatives. And as we have all of the advances in medical science, it is possible to keep a terminally ill person, giving them comfort care, keeping them comfort to live out the final days of their life. One of the problems we have in Canada is that there are not enough palliative care spaces for the re-need. And so EFC again works with governments encouraging them on this area. The Alberta government just recently set aside $1.1 million to help improve palliative care. Another issue that's significant for religious freedom is conversion therapy. Bill C-6 died when the election was called. However, tomorrow, the federal government will be reintroducing this legislation. Now, while we agree that no one should ever be forced into any kind of therapy against their will, we do have concerns in how the legislation was written in the last time around, and we're hoping for some changes because we feel it could definitely be a problem for religious freedom and conscious freedom. And then another issue that's significant in our society is pornography. Research suggests that 93% of our boys, 62% of our girls will be exposed to pornography before they, are, before they reach puberty. The average age of exposure is between 11 and 13 years of age and they're getting, it's getting younger. The other, there are over 4 million porn sites on the internet and they tell us in research that one in four, 25% of all searches on the internet are for pornography. So this is a huge issue and there are significant health risks and issues involved and so EFC again is working with the federal government, the health minister, encouraging them to uh, do an in-depth study on, on what all the different health issues for pornography would be. And then also our government has committed to introduce legislation concerning online harms, hate, child pornography as well. Again, EFC has committed a submission to this consultation as well. And then there's conscience protection. The EFC is working with all levels of government, urging them to introduce conscience protection for healthcare providers. No one should be compelled to participate in a procedure like MAID or abortion against their deeply held beliefs. Also, human trafficking. It's well, well and alive in Canada and generates billions of dollars of revenue annually. It's exceeded in revenue generated only by the illicit drug trafficking. Then there's sex selective abortion. The public square research in April of 2019 on the 50th anniversary of when abortion was first legalized in Canada did an in-depth poll, in-depth survey. They discovered that 98% of those they polled were opposed to sex selective abortion. Now, according to Stats Canada, every year there are between 100,000 and 108,000 abortions performed in Canada. Canada is the only developed nation in the world with no restrictions on the procedure. It is legal for a mom to abort her child right up until the moment before that child is born. And then we have citizen engagement resources. Currently, EFC is working on this kit and it's being updated. But we do have a refugee package, a brochure, just giving you some practical suggestions and resources to help sponsoring a refugee and how to interact with the government on some of these issues. Now, just a couple of court updates. On the 21st of May of this past, or this year rather, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that matters of membership and discipline within a voluntary religious community are outside of the authority and the jurisdiction of the courts. Currently, EFC has been granted intervention because another issue they're dealing with is who are you legally allowed and able to rent your, your property to? And that this would also be falling in that category where you could stick to what is part of your conscience and how you like to function. So I thank you for the opportunity to share. I invite you to stop by our display after the service. Help yourself to information we have there. We would also encourage you to uh, sign up to receive regular 
weekly updates, email updates, on where society is at and also how EFC is seeking to engage in these areas. So thank you and God bless you. And thank you, Neil. Let's stand this morning. Let's pray. So Father, we just want to thank you this morning that you ultimately are in control of our world. <clears throat> we are grateful for that. And yet you also give us uh, responsibility as good stewards. So help us to steward our lives and our community well, Father. And Lord, I just pray today as we hear your word, I pray you'll open the mind of our understanding that you will help us to not just be hearers of the word, but Lord, be responders and appliers and be liberated because where your truth comes to play in our lives, it brings transformation in our hearts. And I pray to that end that you will bring about uh, transforming grace in our lives in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. <clears throat> a number of years ago, I read a book called Love in Action by Bob Moeller, and he tells of a visit that he had with an elderly gentleman who had just really had days to live. And when we got on the topic of his children, he said his expression totally changed from pleasant and cheerful to one of anguish and pain. He said, Bob, all my children are grown now, and I had hoped that as adults they might become better friends. Instead, it seems they always find something to fight about. I suspect that somehow this, his sad expression mirrors the sorrow in the face of our Heavenly Father whenever he looks down and sees his own children bickering and arguing with one another. But there's, there's actually something terribly wrong and even unnatural about a family that is at war with itself. It's not healthy. And that's true with the when the family is actually God's family, his children, the family of God. No loving father can watch his children belittle, attack, and say hateful things to one another without feeling deep and profound grief. How many recognize that the essence of life is really around relationships? And the, the kind of relationships that make life worth living. Many times we get into relationships and they're, they're wonderful and they're uplifting and they're encouraging and it's meaningful. And then there are moments we hit roadblocks and we have difficulties and probably the most traumatic thing that happens in our lives is when our relationships go sideways on us. There's probably nothing more painful, nothing more paralyzing than that. As a matter of fact, it affects everything about our lives. We can't even function correctly because we're in so much pain in our lives. And so I believe it's important that as people of God that we understand the nature of how we're relating to one another. God is actually watching what we're doing and is deeply concerned how we as the church, not just as an organization, but as a living organism, as a, as a community of uh, children of God. You know, we're, we're relating to each other, not just in the now. We're going to relate to each other for all of eternity. Isn't that an amazing thought? We're family, man. We just got to understand that in our minds and that if we have differences on earth, we need to learn how to work through those things. So this morning, what I want us to do is take a look at some text from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 18, and take a look at how we can move from a position of conflict and relationship to a place of building meaningful community. And I think that's important. So the first area that uh, we want to look at today is in the area of how we relate to leaders. And I, I just want, before I get to that, I just wanted to say this, that the enemy of our soul, how many know we're not fighting with people? We have an adversary, spiritual adversary. And he's always working at trying to sow discord. How many realize that? That's his intent. And why? Because he knows that strife and division creates unforgiveness and bitterness, which leaves terrific casualties in its wake. And so I believe that we need to be mindful of that strategy. And so here, as we're looking at these areas, I want to start with this, the area of leadership. And what I mean by that is, why is it that when we're in the middle of a crisis that people get so frustrated with leaders? Ever figured this out? You know, a lot of times we feel powerless. Isn't that true? We feel like we can't change things. And so the people on the top of the pile, they're the guys that are supposed to be able to change things. And so when things are turning out the way we don't want them to, we get frustrated by this, and so we'll lash out. That's a normal human response. How many see that? 
That's typical of human beings to do that. We want change to happen, or we want positive change, or, or we don't want change to happen that maybe we think is unhealthy, whatever the situation is. And so when we look at this realm of leadership, and today we're going to look a little bit at spiritual leadership, but I think it applies to leadership in a broad basis, including family dynamics to governmental dynamics. But many times we have two extremes that we move to as believers. Sometimes we develop an unquestioned devotion to leaders on the one hand, and maybe on the other hand, we have a continually challenging, questioning, frustration with leaders, and we're very unsupportive. We're going to look at both those extremes. I think the first is putting a leader too high up on a pedestal, and usually that creates all kinds of problems. Matter of fact, um, we recognize that though leaders are a gift that God gives to the community in which they're serving, many times these leaders are without, uh, I could say, they're not faultless. Every leader that I've ever looked at all has problems. As a matter of fact, when I read the Bible, I notice that some of the greatest saints, some of the most amazing leaders had glaring errors in their life, great, great problems. Look at Abraham, for example. I mean, here's a guy that lied about his wife, not just once, but twice, and put his wife in difficult situation. And then I take a look at Moses, probably one of the great leaders of the Old Testament. And we read about Moses. He sees an abused uh, Israelite being, you know, beaten up by uh, an Egyptian. And what does he do? He rushes in and kills the Egyptian. Uh, How many know that sometimes we have the right idea, sometimes we're right in what we're seeing, and we want to address it, but we don't always address it in the right way? And do you realize that when we address things in the wrong way, even though we're right, we make everything worse. And that so often happens, and that's exactly what happened to Moses. Or we think of King David. David, who had all of this power as a king, and yet he decided, you know, um, to take another man's wife. And we know the story and how he sent uh, Uriah into battle and he was killed. So David was both an adulterer and a murderer, and he was a leader. And then we think of Peter. I'm just picking people at random. Peter, what did he do? He denied that he knew Jesus three times. He was a actually one of the most dynamic leaders in the New Testament church, and yet we can see that he had faults and failures in his life. So what am I trying to basically say? It's easy to depreciate leaders because we can see their faults, and yet we have to also at times be able to look past those things and recognize that there's not one human leader without fault, not one. And so God gives people as a gift to a community, a community of faith. Here we realize In the church, Jesus himself is the one who's the giver of the gift. It says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers in order to do what? To equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. In other words, they have a function. That's what we need to understand. So leadership is a function. But the leadership role comes in the form of a person. God gives us that gift. Peter points out to those who are called to leadership these words, I believe, of instruction. And I think we need to pay attention to those words when he says, be shepherds of God's flock. This would be a good word for me, right? That's my job. He says, that's under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing. So we have to have a willingness to do this as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. So what should our attitude be? What should the proper attitude be towards a spiritual leader, you know, or leaders? Uh, First of all, we're to appreciate those who God has called to be overseers, who admonish us. In verse 12, he says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Now, some, the word here uh, he says is acknowledge. Some translations say respect. Uh, the idea is to know from experience those who are working hard among you. Now, I know that this, it's interesting, this word hard, working hard among you. You know, sometimes the assumption is that ministry is easy. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I, I took a young person out. He was a visitor to our youth group. And I I think I bought him a hamburger and a Coke. And he said, man, you got the greatest job in the world. You get to take people out like me and buy them a hamburger and a Coke. And I said, yep. And I I just left it at that. I didn't say anything else. You know, because sometimes, you know, people believe that we only work one day a week. You know, but that's not the case whatsoever. 
As a matter of fact, I would suggest a thought to you that the people who have actually come from our congregation and joined our staff, uh, the first week is a whole mind-opening experience of how much really transpires when you get into ministry. There's a lot of work that actually goes about happening here. Now, John Stott says it's this way when he's talking about hard work. He says, the idea there is to toil, to strive, to struggle, and to grow weary in doing so. It conjures up the picture of rippling muscles and pouring sweat. Paul applies it to farm laborers and to the physical exertions in his own tent-making work. But he also uses it in relationship to his apostolic labors, to the hard work of his colleagues, and especially to those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, I know it doesn't seem like hard work when you're preaching and teaching, but they've done studies, and some, some people say that it takes uh, one sermon as the equivalent of eight hours of physical work. So it gives you a little bit of an idea. You better, it's actually, you're exerting a lot of energy because you're pouring something out. And uh, this work is a little different than physical work. It's emotional work. It's spiritual work. And it's actually a lot more intense than people realize. It says here, we are to hold them in loving regard. As he goes on to say, in the highest regard and love because of their work, not because of their personality. Okay, now it's nice when you have somebody you like, that really helps, but sometimes you might not, you know, necessarily feel like, oh, I'm really connecting to this person. No, but we're supposed to respect what they do. That's what he's trying to tell us here. And then it says, live in peace with each other. Uh, I think that's powerful. So this holding in love, as I said, doesn't come as a result of personality, but because of the nature and the demands of the work that they're doing on behalf of people. Do you realize uh, the intensity of Jesus' ministry? Anybody get a little sense of what it was like? I'll give you an idea. Jesus has personal needs. One of the needs was the fact that he was grieving the loss of his, uh, one of his relatives, John the Baptist, was actually related to Jesus. John was beheaded. Jesus was grieving, and yet he went away to a solitary place to be alone. But what happened is people found out where he went. And we read these words. When Jesus landed, he saw a huge crowd. And so what did he do? He had compassion on them and began to heal their sick. And actually, this is a text that leads to the next episode in his life. And you know what that was? They hung out with him for three days. And he had to eventually multiply the fish and the loaves, and he fed 5,000 people. And it was only after that that Jesus had time alone to grieve. Isn't that an amazing story? So it just gives you an idea that sometimes people forget that leaders our people, they have their own sets of needs because we're so consumed with our own situation in our mind. But let me move on here to just say we're told to live in harmonious relationships with others. We're to live at peace. And you know how many recognize, and you've all experienced this, it's a very uh, difficult thing to live in a place of conflict. How many know that's true? How many like to avoid conflict at all costs? I'm curious. Uh, some personality types, that's their, their aim in life, to ever get into a conflict, right? But unfortunately, that's not life. And we've all had those experiences. And how many feel really uncomfortable when you're in a conflicted situation or when, you know, maybe you've had an argument with someone you love or there's a difference of opinion and you feel a little estranged from them? You just, you just feel on edge. You just don't feel life is normal or healthy. And, and it's frustrating. And, and so we recognize the, the grace of living in a harmonious, peace-filled environment. And notice what the psalmist says here in Psalm 133. I love this psalm. He says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Isn't that a great thing? Now, unity does not mean that everybody thinks the same way. See, that's a myth. There's no way possible that everybody even in this room has the same ideas about everything. How many know that's true? but that you and I can actually come together because we're unified around the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, that we have a love for what he's done for us. And out of that love, love is now reciprocated into our hearts and it helps us develop a love for other people and especially for people who love God. It's easier to love that, those individuals. And we know that that's true. And so what does the enemy try to do is disrupt that any which way he can. But notice he goes on to say, now he uses an analogy here. He says, it's like a precious oil running on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Now we know this is poetic, right? Now when you're reading this, 
it's really talking about the anointing that came upon Aaron the high priest. And something profound happened. It wasn't just that, you know, he had a nice scent flowing over his body. It wasn't just that. It represented the presence of the living God. He was anointed with God's presence. And when you and I are living in unity, what's happening is there's an anointing that's being released in our lives. The presence of God flows into that situation. As a matter of fact, um, when we live like this, when we're living in unity, it releases God's empowering presence to function in our life and in our churches. How many think that's pretty important? You know, I, I love that. When God is moving, things start happening that you and I cannot do. You know, how many know we don't heal sick bodies, but God's release of his anointed presence can bring healing to sick bodies. You know what it can do? It can restore broken relationships. It can heal broken marriages. It can do all kinds of amazing things. God's presence allowed to move in those situations. Uh, as a matter of fact, he goes on uh, to say what, what is the result. He said, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, you have to understand a little geography to really value what's going on here, and maybe a little bit of understanding of the nature of what's going on in Israel. Hermon was the northernmost part of the country, and Jerusalem is probably, you know, two hours by drive. It's, it's probably 100 and some plus miles away. So what's he saying? Well, Hermon is the place where you have this snow-covered, it's high up altitude, it snows on Hermon, all of the water, or not, most of the water in Israel comes from Mount Hermon. It actually is the basis of the Jordan River where 90% of all water for Israel comes out of that little river. And the rest of it is through rain, which is a very arid country. So most of it's coming from Mount Hermon. And it's flowing down and it's bringing water to other parts of the country. How many know that when you and I walk in unity, we're releasing the presence of God and his blessing flows into many, many people's lives. And matter of fact, unity brings life and refreshment. No wonder the enemy of our soul constantly battles to foster strife and contention and division in relationships. Can you see why he's doing it? Because he knows that if you and I can actually learn to disagree agreeably, to actually value people who may not think like us and still love them and not just write them off. How powerful is that? And that's all part of growing up and becoming a mature person. But one of the reasons why we don't do that is because we feel insecure, we feel threatened, and possibly we build a wall to protect ourselves because we've been hurt in the past. Isn't that true? And I'm gonna challenge you today with something very, uh, what I would consider uh, against the normal current of human nature. Usually when we hurt, what do we do? We withdraw inside of ourselves. We build a little wall to protect ourselves. And I'm gonna ask you to be courageous today and move towards your pain. I believe if you do that, God's gonna do amazing work of healing in your own life, and he's gonna bring about restoration in many relationships, which is counterintuitive, I know. But listen to what Jesus had to say. Um, he, goes, he says this, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Another translation says will be destroyed. And every city or household divided against itself can't stand. So we know that that's a problem. The second area of relationship and moving from conflict to healthy community is with fellow believers. We talked a little bit about the conflict that sometimes people have with leaders, but this is even amongst ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says the Christian cannot simply take for granted the privilege of living among other Christians. How many recognize that until this pandemic hit, you know, people came to church and we never thought anything of it. Then all of a sudden we had a restriction one day and nobody could come to church. We'd kind of taken that for granted, did we not? Listen to what he says here. It is by God's grace that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly around God's word and sacrament in this world. Not all Christians partake of this grace. There are people who can't get here. As a matter of fact, there are the imprisoned, the sick, the lonely who live in exile, the proclaimers of the gospel in missionary lands that they're just kind of isolated and by themselves. 
they know that visible community is an amazing grace. Matter of fact, I've been visiting a lady uh, who's joined our church, but she can't physically come to church, but she's now in palliative care, but, you know, wants to be a part of our congregation, so I've gone to visit her a few times, and how meaningful that is to her. You see, we, we take things for granted so often, and how many know we never really appreciate things until we lose them? And then we realize, wow, look what I lost. Yeah, I never really valued what I had until it was gone. He goes on to say the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and a strength to a believer. Isn't it great that we can come together and worship God together? Don't you sense that is an enhanced uh, measure of the presence of the living God when we worship together? How many sense that? I, I mean, you could go home and praise God, put music on, sing to your heart's content, but it's a lot different when you come here and there's a bunch of other people doing it with you. You just sense the glory and the presence of God in such a profound and powerful way. Yet what makes for peace? Why is there so much strife? You know, I think the answer is there is one who is the Prince of Peace. His name is Jesus. And when we come to Christ and when we surrender to him, he makes us vehicles and instruments of peace. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians. He says, for he himself is our peace. In Christ, I have peace with the Father. In Christ, I can have peace with other people. Christ brings peace. Who has made two groups? He's talking about Jews and Gentiles here, two groups that seem to be on a totally different band. He says he he, he brought the two groups one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. I am so convinced that if two people will come to Christ you know, and surrender to his lordship, there's possibility for those hostilities and barriers to actually come down in relationships. And folks, I want to give you the good news. I am actually witnessing that happening in our church family. I've seen God do miracles when people were estranged because Jesus now was able to come into that situation. 1 Thessalonians verse 14 says, and we urge you, brothers, And sisters, warn those who are idle, disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and to everyone else. And so here's what I notice. How do we actually practically go from conflict to community? And I think if we look at these statements we just read, you're gonna see five areas that will help us move there. And the first one is simply... Warn those who are causing disorder. It says here, uh, these are the people, Paul, uh, means that are not engaged and they're not involved. You ever notice that sometimes the people with the biggest complaints are not really doing a lot? I was just reading that in Nehemiah. They wouldn't put their hand, uh, neck to the work and they were just wandering around complaining. Gene Green says, those who are in need of this admonition are the idle, but who are not the lazy, that word doesn't necessarily, we've entitled it idle, but it's rather the people who are disorderly and undisciplined. They're the people who are marching out of step. It's kind of a military term. They're out of step with everybody else. You know, they've gotten themselves out of step. And uh, uh, it's uh, John MacArthur, he says, such are those who fa- fail to serve the church with their spiritual gifts give the church a portion of their wealth, or support the church's leadership. These are the people who are just doing their own thing. They're not really, you know, making the thing happen. He goes on to say, they may have been unsupportive because they did not care or because they were angry, rebellious, and contentious. Such people, if not dealt with, tend to become bitter. How many know bitter people are not pleasant people? Anybody discovered that yet? They'll tell you all the things that are wrong. It says, they can become criticizing bench warmers and eventually rebels who undermine church leadership to justify their insubordination. Both are obviously divisive. The second group that needs help are the disheartened. So these are all attitudinal things. You're going to see that. It's all got to do with where our heads are at and where our hearts are at. He goes, those are the people who are discouraged and are in danger of giving up. I've sensed a lot of people are disheartened right now. You go, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to say that, Pastor. But now I'm going to give you a word that's going to sound really strange to you. It's going to be counterintuitive. Are you ready to hear a very counterintuitive behavior? And I'm going to share this with my own personal experience. The deepest, darkest time of discouraging my life, the Spirit of God gave me this scripture when I was in prayer. 
And it was simply these, these words. Be, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And I said, God, you're mocking me. I feel weak as a kitten. You're telling me to be strong. And then I, I was reminded as I looked at that text, it didn't say be strong in myself. It said be strong in the Lord. And I want to just challenge you right now. Some of you that are disheartened and discouraged, you need to be strong. As a matter of fact, if you think of the word discouragement for a minute, it's the negation of courage. It's the absence of courage. And when I read the scriptures, everywhere I turn, I see God saying, be courageous, be strong and very courageous, but not in yourselves. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So we find strength in God. And we're gonna talk about how to achieve that in a moment or two. The third group are the weak. This is the group that are not only physically sick, but who are struggling emotionally and spiritually. They often battle doubts. These are the people more susceptible to false teaching and are overly sensitive and are easily offended. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the church at Rome, addressed some of those that were weak when he said, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So here's what he's telling us. There's always gonna be weak people and strong people. And the strong people have a moral obligation to help the weak people and not just live for themselves. Isn't that powerful? Could you imagine if everybody took these words to heart? That'd be powerful. He goes on to say, each of us should please his neighbors for their good and to build them up. Can I, can I challenge us this morning? How many here like to be around a critical, complaining, grumpy person? Don't you always, don't you feel edified after that? Really built up and... No, but isn't it great when you're around somebody who is an encourager, who speaks words of life and encourages and builds up and strengthens, and you, when you finish talking to them, you feel like you could take on the world, you know? Don't you like, be, how many like being around those people? They just kind of lift you up. That's what you really want, but I'm gonna challenge you. Why don't we become those kind of people? Why don't we make a decision to say, you know what, I'm gonna walk around encouraging people. I'm gonna speak words of life and encouragement and I'm gonna pour strength inside of people. I'm gonna build people up. And that's powerful stuff. And you know what's gonna happen when you start to do that? People are gonna wanna be around you because you're an encourager. People like to be around people who encourage, who listen, who care, who accept, who don't you know, put them down. You know, I, I think there's a time to confront people, but you know, generally people need a lot more encouragement than they do need confrontation. Move on to the fourth. That's the struggling believer. The struggling believer uh, is the person who lives in crisis management. You know, you know what I'm talking about? They just go from one crisis to the next. You know, there's only two ways to live life. I learned this. I mean, I grew up in a home. You know, bless my mom. I love her. Great lady. Had great qualities, very generous, but she lived, she was a crisis manager. You know, she went from one crisis to the next to the next. So, you know, it really prepared me for pastoral ministry. You know, it really did, because all I ever heard was crisis. You know, now that I'm a pastoral minister, I hear lots of crisis. But I noticed one thing, that what, the way to get out of living in a crisis management mentality is that you live by objective. You have a purpose that transcends the crisis. You start looking to God and you have a deeper purpose in life so that when the crisis comes, it doesn't throw you off board. You're still focused on a higher objective. And so even though there's crisis in your life, you don't let the crisis define who you are as a person. And final group are those who sin against us. How many know that's the most difficult group to deal with, the person who sins against you, person who's hurt you? And I could ask, ask the question, how many here you've been sinned against? Anybody here been sinned against? Every hand should be up. I don't think that's, that's you know, right? That's gonna happen. I'm saying, welcome to the human race. You know, we all act as if, you know, it's, I'm the only person ever been sinned against. Come on now, we've all been sinned against. That's reality. That's part of the human experience. So what's the way to handle this? Well, I, I think we have to live a life of forbearance, forgiveness, and non-retaliation. As a matter of fact, we read that verse, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Rather, we should strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now, take a look at how Jesus handled the people who sinned against him. What did he do? He forgave. And you and I need to learn to forgive the people who are even crucifying us. We need to do good to them and bless them. You say, pastor, that's not, that's not my normal disposition. 
I know, that's not the human disposition. That's a divine disposition. That takes God's work in your heart to allow that to happen in your life. And sometimes we need to ask God to help us to forgive people. We need to ask God to help us to do good to people who have wounded us and hurt us. Uh, Gene Green says, moreover, within the church itself, where were members who did, uh, who did not completely conform to the moral standards of the community and who even took advantage of fellow believers. Some people say, I, I can't believe it. It was a Christian that did this to me. I'm going, listen, they're people. Remember I started the sermon? Even the best people sin. So let's get over that nonsense. You know, pres- presenting another temptation to those affected to pay back wrong for wrong instead of correcting them for their benefit and building them out. But let me move on to the third area. And this is probably the most important. How do you move from conflict to community? Well, you have to look at your relationship to God. How are we relating to God? Are we relating to God properly? I love the response that Jesus had to the woman at the well. Remember, he's talking to her, and and she's asking, where should they worship? And then finally, Jesus says, it doesn't matter where we worship. God's a spirit. Powerful statement. And he said, his worships must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, in spirit speaks of an internal, intimate, active response to God rather than merely a ritualistic or a formalistic response. In other words, there's an intimacy with God. We're not just going through the motions here. We're not just going to church and we're doing the same things. Even though it looks like we may be doing the same things, right now we're letting God's spirit speak into our lives, okay? That's an intimate and an active response to God. And then it says, in truth, is having a right understanding as to the nature of God, Do you know what happens? Many Christians develop a distorted view of God. And when we do that, we're creating an image. And many times, the image we create is after ourselves. And so we make God in our image. So then we start talking like this. You know, God is just like me. If I want this, then God would have to be for me because he's just like me. Can I tell you that God is unlike us? This is going to shake us up a little bit. And actually, we need to go to the word of God and find out what God is really like so that we can become like him. And that's a journey, folks. I've been on it for a long time now, and I've discovered something. When I first started the journey, I was a lot unlike God. I can tell you, I was ungodly. I was not like him. But over the years, as I'm moving towards him, I'm becoming more like him. But it's a journey. It takes a long time to become like God. <clears throat> it doesn't happen overnight. It's, you know, you're moving and you're changing little by little, and you're realizing, oh, I'm not, that's not what God's like. You know, this is what I'm like, but God's not like that. I need to change what I'm doing. You see, you know, I withdraw when people hurt me. Does God withdraw when people hurt him? No, he keeps reaching out to them. Isn't that an amazing thought? He does a lot of things a lot differently than how you and I would do things. We need to figure out what's he doing. But let's take a look at how Paul describes it here for us. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean? Be joyful always. What's the idea behind this exhortation? Or maybe let me ask the question, how many here you can say, I'm always joyful, Pastor? How many here you're always joyful? Nobody's raising their hands. Oh, well, you know, then we're failing in our relationship with God, right? Think about that. Isn't he telling me and you, he says, I want you to be joyful always. So you're going, well, maybe I don't understand what he's talking about. I think... The joy should always be in our lives. In other words, there should be a a spirit inside of us that's filled with uh, uh, elation and exaltation towards God, no matter what circumstances we're in. We're just like that. As a matter of fact, uh, the joy should, uh, he goes on to say, uh, Gene Green says, the apostles never encouraged believers to deny their adversity. In other words, they're going, they're not in denial saying, no, there's nothing wrong with me, or there's no problems in my life or I'm not sad, or I don't have grief. But they recognize that in the midst of the most agonizing situations in the presence of God through his spirit, he can infuse the soul with hope and the heart with joy. Isn't it amazing that you can be hurting and yet still have joy? Now that's powerful. That's what we're talking about here. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul describes his life sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I'm going through terrible things, but I'm still rejoicing. Poor, he says, yeah, but I'm making many rich. He says, having nothing, and yet I possess everything. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that the kind of the irony of the Christian life? You know, see, in North America, we're being told you need more things to make you happy. 
And I'm saying, no, that's not the issue. Doesn't matter how many things you have, it's not gonna make you happy. That's not what makes people happy. You go, well, pastor, what makes people happy? It's having a right relationship with God. That's what'll make you happy. It's learning the secret to be content in any and every situation, no matter if I have a lot or a little. I can do all things through Christ, which gives me strength. That's the secret of contentment. That's powerful. As a matter of fact, this paradox continues on in Romans chapter eight, uh, where it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So instead of asking the why question, this is the one we usually ask when we have a problem. Why me or why is this happening? Let's change that question. Let's push out why and let's push in what and how. What is, what is God doing in my life right now? And how am I gonna grow through this experience? I'm asking totally different questions. How many know just changing the question all of a sudden changes how I'm seeing the situation? Instead of seeing this as the worst thing that's ever happened to me, begin to look at how is God gonna use this terrible thing in my life, turn it around, use it for good. I'm gonna grow through this experience. I'm gonna be comforted by God and I'm gonna be able to have a more powerful impact in the lives of other people. How many think that's a totally way of, different way of looking at it? But usually what we're doing is we're saying, why me? I don't deserve this. Come on now. Change the questions and it changes your, your focus. Do you know what really hit me today? I'm doing my devotional time. I'm in the book of Nehemiah and I read this beautiful verse. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know what I sense Christians are doing right now through the last almost two years? We're grieving. That's what we're doing. Think of all of the signs of, of grief. Denial, anger. You know, we're, we're walking through grief. Can I tell you what's going to help you right now? The joy of the Lord is your strength. What should we be doing right now in the midst of this uh, grieving time in our human story? We should be rejoicing. Oh, pastor, that doesn't even make sense. That's the very opposite of how I feel. That's the problem. You're letting your feelings define what you're doing. I'm saying continue to rejoice in God. I'm saying if you and I will start praising and worshiping and rejoicing and delighting in God, you know what's gonna happen? Your innermost being is gonna rise up and you're not gonna allow the, the circumstances to define you as a person. That's very powerful. He says pray continually. Well, what does that mean, pastor? That means I gotta keep talking and pray to God every single moment of every single day. Well, not quite, because sometimes I got to talk to Patty. <laughs> That's my wife. Or I got to talk to my grandkids, or I got to talk to someone here, or I got to listen to someone talk to me. What does that mean then? Well, it just simply means that prayer becomes a way of life, that you and I default to prayer, that when people tell me their problems, they say, hey, why don't we, why don't we bring Jesus in on this conversation right now? Let's talk to him and commit it to him, okay? You know? As a matter of fact, Jesus said we should always pray and not to give up. You know why people give up in life? They've stopped praying. And people who are praying, they don't give up. And what I've noticed on Tuesday nights is some of you are coming and you're not giving up. Beautiful. Keep praying, right? We have the throne of grace we can approach with confidence to find grace and help in our time of need and finally give thanks always. Gratitude is one of the most powerful attitudes in life. As a matter of fact, Paul warns, don't be a grumbler. Some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. All they did was gripe and complain. How many, I've already said this, how many like hanging with people that are complaining all the time? Not too good. I, I have a funny feeling God doesn't like it either because I'm reading this text. He doesn't like griping and complaining all the time either. So these things happen to us as examples and were written down as warning, warning, don't grumble and complain. That's what he's telling us, right? He's warning us, don't do that. So what should I be doing? Thanking. And you know, some of you go, well, I don't even know what to thank God for. I could probably give you 10 things off the top of my head that you could thank God for. If you're here today and breathing, that's one thing to thank God for. If you know Jesus, that's two things to thank God for. You know, I could just keep going down until I could make a list for you. And at the end of the list, you're going, why am I complaining? You see, the problem is focus. Where is my focus? And for many people, the focus is on what they don't have, the problems they have, what's not going right. And I'm saying, why are we doing that? Why don't we focus on 
who God is, how great he is, what I can learn from God at this time, all the things God's put into my life to help me to overcome these things, and I can still grow. And I can tell you from experience, I'm a little older than most of you, and not all of you, but most of you, and I can say God's faithful, God's loving, God's the most compassionate person I know. All the jams that I was sweating about never really happened the way I thought they would. God got me out of every last one of them. I'm like King David. I said, you know, God has delivered me from all my troubles. So why be anxious? Let's stand. I'm sorry I'm a few minutes over here, but I want to just close with a word of prayer right now. And just with every head bowed, how many here, you're saying to yourself, oh my goodness, pastor. You know what? I have to confess I've not been a happy camper. I have to confess I've been grumping and complaining. You know, there's only two lanes in life. You're either driving on the grumpy lane or the happy lane. I'm telling you that's the truth, and happiness is a choice. And I'm driving in the happy lane, and I'm, I'm, you know, I know my prayer this morning was, Lord, could you help every one of these beautiful people that are here and listening to me today join me on the happy lane? How many want to join me on the happy lane? today. You just want to move your vehicle over, get on that happy lane with your life and just say, Lord, I'm just going to decide to be a happy person. I'm going to make a decision to be a thankful person. I'm going to be a person that's going to pray and rejoice in you because I know that if I do that and I'm relating to you and there's joy in my life, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to be able to come alongside of other people and I'm I'm actually going to even you know, start loving people that I don't agree with. My goodness, that's part of maturing. Isn't that good? Isn't that what we want to do? You know, let's not be so insecure, my friends, that, you know, we just write people off because we don't agree with them. You know what happens? You'll become a very limited person. Open your soul up today. I'm going to challenge you to embrace your pain A lot of people are scared of that. But I'm going to tell you, that's where God is going to meet you today. So, Father, we come in your presence right now. And we just lift our hearts to you today. We lift our hearts to you today. I pray, Father, that you will give us a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving. You will fill us with joy in the Holy Ghost. You will help us, Lord, to be forgiving, forbearing, accepting, understanding, showing kindness, showing grace. Lord, I just pray right now that you will bring about transformation even in the broken places and the wounded places of our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.